Hi, this is Adele Hashkhalil. I'm the general manager of Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and you listen to the Water Value Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations by Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Trinix, trust in what's next. And by Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. This is session 235. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Well, we have a terrific show for you with one of the great water leaders in the United States. Today, Will Pickering, the CEO of the Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority, joins us. He discusses some of the programs that the Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority has undertaken, including its lead service line, a replacement program, and its water resiliency plan, a wide-ranging look at utility leadership is included as well, as well as a what I think is a very important discussion about utility trust building. I think Will is a fantastic uh, guest. We had a great conversation. I truly enjoyed it. It was, it was terrific getting to know Will a little better. So uh, thank you, Will, for spending time with us and imparting some of your uh, knowledge and, and insights in the water industry to us. As you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Trinex, and Mentor APM. That is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. So I thank you all, and I'd like for you, the listener, if you would please do me a favor. If you work for or with any of those sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far a simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know how much you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It would be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Well, before we head on to the great interview with Will, let's get our Bluefield on Tap segment done with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Well, Reese, welcome to another Bluefield on Tap. How are we doing today? Pretty good, Dave. Pretty good. Um, lots of things going on and uh, just happy to be here. Otherwise, I'd give you a laundry list of good things. <laughs> Yeah, let's keep the sports talk to a minimum because things aren't going very well in my world. Um, so uh, what is uh, top of mind in water for you this uh, this month? So one, th- well, there are a couple things, but, you know, this sort of came to to my list of ideas 
or thoughts about what's happening is one, Bluefield, we just released our top companies in water sort of revenue analysis of 50 or so companies globally, um, sort of the state of the world. And then also our uh, M&A wrap up of 2022, what happened, big deals, small deals, but also just overall accounts. And so I thought I'd sort of shed some light on that and talk because it's a bit of a barometer about the health of the sector and what people are thinking given the I guess if you want to call it global market uncertainty. Yeah. So let's let's dive into the the first the revenue projections or the revenue not the revenue projections but the revenue analysis. Yeah, so I mean I think you know as a whole like I said we look at this and I'm sure we probably already talked about this but we typically look at about 50 or so companies that sort of you know from quarter to quarter what their water-related revenues are, what they're talking about as far as stresses. And amazingly, of the 50 for their annual revenues from 2022, only four of them are down. And so just to put it in, in perspective, we're talking companies, This 50, these 50 companies represent about $288 billion in total revenues, of which about 22% of that is water-related. So these are obviously the big players, as you could think of, like, the Veolias, the Itrons, the Bentleys, the Fergusons of the world, as well as sort of the uh, investor in utilities like American Essential, San Jose Eversource, et cetera. Got it. Got it. And so what what can we divine by uh, those revenue numbers being up? And is there any kind of long, long-term trends that you think are being fulfilled in there? Well, I mean, I'd say just even stepping back, looking at the market as a whole, you know, given that there have been, I think, did I read 175 to 200,000 tech layoffs over the past six to 12 months, um, which is pretty significant. So there's some real uncertainty. Is the water sector a market, given its maturity, given its stability, is it a, uh, is it an opportunity for companies to sort of put some money in, in some uh, – stable stable markets such as water and so what we are seeing is that if anything um revenues are up it's like a tortoise quite honestly the water sector it just goes uh and the demand is up but also the other headwinds related to things like um you know the colorado river there's there's obvious stress on what's happening in the western u.s as well as europe and so companies are looking at water alongside sustainability measures to say, all right, well, maybe, you know, what's happening there. And as a whole, if, if there's a downside to it, it is really the housing market. So of the those four companies we looked at, you know, they are either metering companies or a company like ADS, which is tied heavily to the commercial and or residential sector for stormwater management. They've been hit. So um, but as a whole, we're pretty optimistic about what's happening in the water sector. Good, good. Well, I am too. So, uh, speaking of optimism, let's let's flip our focus to the M and A you mentioned, and uh, let's hear about what's going on in the water M and A sector. Yeah. So, this past year, we recorded three hundred and sixty deals, uh, and you know, globally that we tracked, which is quite honestly about one hundred and fifty down from. Um, from the 500 plus that we recorded in the prior year in 2021. While it's down, it's still above the five-year annual average. So, you know, I would say given what's happening in the market, we were, we've definitely been concerned about, hey, maybe the cost of capital is making things tough. But actually, as a whole, 
while every segment is down, is probably back to the what I would call a more normal pace of activity that we're seeing. And so whether that be uh, for utility acquisitions, instead of being 200 plus, it was closer to 200 for the year. And the same would be said for digital. If any sector is down, it's probably the digital. Um, obviously, that would make sense in the tech sector, um, heavily relying on things like VC and private equity. Uh, so is a whole while down still positive. So those two benchmarks are pretty strong, I think, overall for the sector. What time period was, was involved? It was obviously Evoqua and Xylem's acquisition of Evoqua has not closed, but is that included in that or are you just counting closed deals? We're just counting closed deals, but the that Xylem Evoqua deal was at the beginning of the year. So that falls into Q1. So as far as annual totals, that has not been recorded Um, But that was obviously a big one. There have been two big ones of note um, that we've seen this past quarter. That would be the Xylem Evoqua deal, but also the Solenis diversity deal as well was a big one. I think, you know, the other one that we've been tracking closely, honestly, and one of the things I was thinking about, because we put some research out on this, and that is Veolia. Veolia, a year later after buying Suez, is now starting to sell off some of its assets. It just sold off U.S. Water, USG, water solutions or technologies, which is a tank maintenance company in the U.S. So these are, I guess, the what we're now talking about. Instead of mandated or, you know, forced deals in Europe to meet with uh, with compliance or competitive um, compliance in, your, in France and the U.K., now we're starting to see them offload some assets that probably don't align with what their long-term vision is. Yeah, good deal. All right, well, Reese, always great speaking with you. Thanks for the information, and we'll uh, talk to you next month. All right, Dave, good to talk, and uh, we'll have a better uh, sports discussion next time. (laughs) All right, let's hope. All right, bye, Reese. Cheers. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. Now it's time for the main event, the interview with Will Pickering, the CEO of the Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Will, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad to have you on. How are you today? I am doing great, David. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm. I'm so uh, uh, thrilled to have you on. I know that uh, uh, I, we've we've kind of been connected on LinkedIn for a while, and it is uh, it is great to finally have the opportunity to sit down and chat with you. Uh, Will, for those who may not know who you are and your background and all that, can you please give us a thumbnail on? your background and how you got to the, how you came to the water sector. Absolutely. And it was a, it's a bit of a circuitous route to, to land me here in Pittsburgh. I'm currently the chief executive officer of the Pittsburgh water and sewer authority. Uh, but if we go way back, I grew up in uh, Silicon Valley. I grew up in Palo Alto. I was a Bay area kid, went to college out there and the last quarter of my schooling i had a congressional internship in washington dc and really fell in love with politics fell in love with the nation's capital and i was always sort of fascinated in government and that experience heightened that and ended up uh you know i I wanted to spend a year in the east coast and come back to california like all californians do but uh, as fate had it (laughs) i stayed for over a decade um, and really from the, the federal, federal government was obviously the focus, what brought me to DC, but I fell in love with local government and found myself working for a few different mayors of the district of Columbia, 
For those unfamiliar, D.C. is an interesting government at a local level because it functions as a city, county, and a state. Um, so I was doing work at legislative relations, government relations, analyzing bills, uh, things of that nature, and kind of had this portfolio of infrastructure agencies that I was responsible for. Got to meet some fantastic people. George Hawkins actually was one of uh, the first agency directors that I interacted with. He was running DC's Department of Environment at the time, um, and I was kind of his counter uh, point or his point of contact in the mayor's office for all things legislative. And meeting interesting people like him, um, he then obviously moved on to DC Water. And I just became, I was always fascinated with infrastructure, public works, uh, trying to figure out how things worked, why they worked in a municipal environment. And I uh, got sucked into the, the orbit of water and wastewater. DC had a lot going on at the time and still does with respect to their uh, water and combined sewer overflow programs. And uh, I actually, through the, the connections that I made with George, you fast forward a few years, I ended up working at DC Water with him and his team, uh, working in his public affairs department at DC Water and got to work with some amazing individuals there uh, and, and worked there for about five years. My wife is a Pittsburgher. Actually, my mother grew up in Pittsburgh. She's one of 10 kids. Uh, who were born and raised here. So I I never lived here in Pittsburgh, but certainly it's been a lot of time and uh, wanted to to relocate to Pittsburgh and start a family, which is what my wife and I did in 2016. And just at that time, there was an opening uh, at Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority and, and have kind of worked my way up the ranks from, uh, believe it or not, a temporary employee back in 2016 to now <laughs> chief executive officer, uh, which was the role that I took on in 2020. Well, that is a great story, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you could uh, in, enlighten us on who the Steelers are going to take in the uh, NFL draft coming up here, but uh, we'll we'll keep that hush-hush. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think we're set at quarterback, but everything else, <laughs> uh, hard to say. Yeah. Well, very good. So you've, you've came, came on board in 2020. You know, that would be, that seems to me at least to be a challenging time to start a career as the, or start in the position of chief executive officer given the COVID restrictions and things of that nature, how, how did that, uh, you know, how, how did starting off on that foot uh, impact your tenure so far? You know, it, it, you're absolutely right. There was just so much uncertainty, not just at our organizational level, but across the world at that time, um, you know, there a lot of lack of trust in our institutions um, you know, even David, I'm sure you recall early on, there was uncertainty of whether wastewater or drinking water could be a vector for COVID-19. Um, so navigating that as a relatively new leader was um, certainly trial by fire. I, I did have the benefit of knowing a lot of my colleagues prior to uh, taking on the, the new responsibility of serving as chief executive officer, which I think helped in a lot of ways. The The team that I inherited has been a, a fantastic one, and we've built on it from, uh, you know, that point a, a few years ago. But, I you know, I, I knew the internal workings of the organization had relationships with leadership at the city level as well. Um, but, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say it was absolutely terrifying, <laughs> just in, <laughs> in so many respects, right? But, you know, it was also a huge opportunity to be able to reframe what we do day in and day out. And many people have dedicated their lives 
decades longer than I have in this industry and and having them appreciate the essential role of the the drinking water, wastewater, utilities, uh, and as it relates to public health, uh, you know, the hospitals, which are a huge deal here in Pittsburgh, they all relied on us being able to provide that continual service, even when, um, you know, everyone pretty much was working from home except for those essential workers. And I, I certainly wanted to take advantage of that opportunity to remind our workforce uh, that really what we're doing stacks up against all of the other, other essential workers that we relied upon in those early days of the pandemic. That's a great, that, that, I think that is great context for kind of my next question. Uh, given the backdrop of the pandemic, what all have you been able to accomplish? What are you kind of most proud of in the last couple of years that, that Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority has, uh, has uh, undertaken? Well, I think at the last few years, David, we just have continued to keep our foot on the gas pedal with respect to our lead service line replacement program. And it's one that originated from a point of, you know, failure and crisis for the organization. I mentioned that I joined in 2016. That was a few months after the Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority had exceeded the lead action level. And that is the the EPA and state rule that is in place to ensure that drinking water utilities are are treating to reduce exposure to lead. And when they do not do so, to revisit their treatment process and replace lead service lines. So when I came to PWSA, we had a requirement to replace 7% of the lead lines that we had in our system. Quite honestly, we didn't know how many we had in our system, and we're still working on that inventory um, but the the maps that that we have now did not exist. We were relying on paper records, some of them 100 years old, to be able to track down where these lead lines were. And, and that program, which was a sort of a mad scramble in 2016, 2017, 2018, it really got its legs. And even during the pandemic, we were able to replace thousands of lead service lines. We do not do partial lead service line replacements which is a, a, an important policy distinction that it's something that our board of directors and our city leadership has guided us toward. And it's something that we're very proud of. We provide full lead service line replacements at no direct cost to our customers. And we're prioritizing them based on socioeconomic and other risk factors so that we're targeting the work to the highest risk populations first. And, and that's really been, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of work across the board but you know, over the last few years, that has been the bulk of our construction activity. We have invested, um, the last, I pulled the numbers a few weeks ago, about $270 million in this effort since 2017. So it's been a huge lift, but it's one that's really starting to pay dividends uh, in helping not just water quality, but helping us rebuild the trust that we lost back in that 2017, 2016 time period when we exceeded the lead action level. And we're at the point now, I'm, I'm really happy that we're being heralded by the White House. We actually recently received an award from EPA for our programs, and it's created a point of pride internally and externally for our city. Well, that is, that's absolutely terrific. Now, let me ask you, how are you funding that? Is it through grants or is it just a, a kind of a line item in your, in your uh, revenue requirement or rates? It is an all of the above strategy. So we have benefited from a a really strong partnership with our state revolving fund, which here in Pennsylvania is called PennVest. 
So uh, the majority of the funding that they're able to give to us is low interest loans. However, on the lead service line replacement component of our work, they have been able to uh, allow us to tap into to grant funding. And then some of the gap funding that we have in between is issued either through traditional municipal bonds or other rate sources. But the the federal government through EPA's revolving funds have have helped us be able to to finance this work in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And we're really excited for the funding that's available in the bipartisan infrastructure law to help us get to to a point where we can replace all of the lead service lines. We've replaced 10,000. We think we have uh, maybe about 8,000 left, and we're going to continue to avail ourselves of that. You know, our priority is grants because that's those are dollars you don't need to pay back. Um, but we also will take advantage of financing programs uh, to to minimize the cost to our ratepayers for this very expensive work. Great. Now, what I'm sure you've got other things that you're uh, very proud of in over in Pittsburgh. So what what are some other accomplishments that you uh, you'd like to highlight? Well, we have been really hard at work at taking a look at our water distribution and storage systems. So for those unfamiliar with Pittsburgh, we you know, at one point were the industrial lifeblood of the country. We had a population more than double uh, that we have today. We had water intensive industries like the steel industry. And so our, our water system that was designed by brilliant engineers over a century ago, it was not designed for the city that sits here today, which is a wonderful, uh, very advanced city focused on a robotics industry and education and medicine. Um, but we, we have a lot of excess capacity and because of our industrial roots, you know, the water system really was was built 100 years ago. And unfortunately, there was not a lot of attention to the maintenance of it. So we've had to go back and revisit our water treatment plant, our reservoirs, the mains that take that treated water and they they force it uphill to our reservoirs, our pump stations. All of those major components are due for upgrades. And we were, even in the last year, able to make a lot of progress toward that. We replaced the liner and cover of one of our very large reservoirs, and we were able to rehabilitate one of the two large diameter water pipes that feeds that reservoir. And um, we are all building toward, there's a series of projects that are dependent on one another to allow us to make a final investment at our treatment plant and replace our clear well, which is the last step of our disinfection process before drinking water is distributed to customers. And this is a, a massive holding tank buried underground that is a single cell that is 120 years old. And we know we need to replace this structure, but because it is that last step, uh, we, there's no easy way to take it offline until we update our pump stations, we bypass that and have a temporary clear well, and we do some upkeep on those rising mains so that we have redundancy in our system. So our goal through what this series of projects we're calling our water reliability plan is for us to have a, a drinking water system that's the right size, that provides redundancy, and uh, in, its, in essence, it's going to be a new system that's not going to serve our current generation, but it's going to serve our children and potentially their children, since we know that these assets can last up to 100 years. 
the, the projects you've identified, the lead service line replacement, the water reliability plan, those seem to be like projects that, and, and I think you've mentioned this is it builds or rebuilds the trust with your, you know, your customer base. Can you talk a little about how the, how the, not, not only how the projects have done, helped you rebuild that trust, but what else has helped you rebuild that trust with your customer base? Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's difficult being a utility leader. I think, um, you know, a lot of literally what we do is buried underground and um, some see kind of staying out of the news or out of the limelight as a sign of success. The kind of, if you're not hearing any complaints, you can, um, you know, you're, you're doing a good job. And really we know because of the amount of investment that we are currently making and will need to make into the future, we need to be, public we need to be honest we need to be transparent with our customers and talk about the the work that we're doing the impact they're going to have on them um the the team that we have been able to build over the last few years has certainly helped us have consistency um you know when i joined the authority there was an interim executive director there was another interim leader so unfortunately, we were an organization that suffered from a, a lack of sustained leadership, and that is no longer an issue for the utility. And I think it's one that the public can appreciate that the there is a vision set forth through these water reliability plans and our goal to replace all of our lead service lines that we have made progress with, with the same team here, with a team that's dedicated to being transparent. And hey, we are de- dealing with assets that are well over 100 years in some instances you know even in the last few weeks we have had some infrastructure failures that cause an impact to customers but our goal is that we, at least we can explain the the justification for the work that we're doing and and try to explain the condition of the water system and where it is now and where we're trying to take it uh with investments so we're we're catching up on a lot of lost time uh, which, you know, I think it can be difficult in the short run, especially from an affordability perspective, but given how important drinking water is, and I think, you know, we are at a point where our country, I think maybe more than ever, arguably values high quality drinking water and the safety of their drinking water. Um, you know, we really can't take a blind eye approach to some of these investments that really we should have been making over decades. So the, it's a, it's a long game, David, in terms of building that trust. It's one that, you know, me as a communications and public policy pers- professional and not a technical expert, I think it's one that suits me for the role of having to communicate the overall value of what we do um, and then being transparent and being able to hear out our community members and our stakeholders when we're maybe doing something that they disagree with or need to learn more. It's it's opening the door to that two-way conversation and um, like I said, it doesn't happen overnight, but I think we have been able to, to chip away at it. Yeah, I, I, I like your approach because, you know, you recognize that it is, as you indicated, the long game. It takes a long time to build up your reputation. I, I just, you know, as you were speaking, I was just remembering being a kid and having my dad say, you know, it takes years to build your reputation and you can undo it with just one mess up. Um, and just that's how delicate trust is. Um, and so I think, you know, building that trust takes a lot of time and you have to be, you have to nurture it a lot. Otherwise you lose that trust very quickly. 
oh, your, your father was a wise man. It's <laughs> something we talk about all the time. And, you know, because of the blood, sweat and tears, it's it's taken us to get to the point where we're feeling a little better about our standing in the community. And don't get me wrong, we can always do more and we can always be better. Um, you know, for the things that we can control, we're going to do our best to make sure that we're open and honest and transparent with our customers um, and, and responsive too, right? Uh, you know, it, that that I think that two-way conversation needs to be a part of it. Um, but it's just, yeah, you're right. That one, that one costly mistake can set you back uh, and you're all, you're, you're back at scratch again. Can you address how technology has helped you build trust uh, with your customer base? Absolutely. And, you know, when I joined the organization, you know, my focus was public affairs and, you know, kind of the immediacy of the lead crisis in utilizing, you know, back in 2016, 17, what was then a, a relatively novel uh, at least here locally, social media channels of, of Twitter and using Facebook and social media next door, trying to use some some of the retail technology to be able to communicate with customers where they are. So, you know, recognizing not everyone is on social media, but using those avenues when we can to spread important public health information or project details, outage information. That was something that we have really been able to build out over the last few years. And it's something now that I, I think most utilities do. A lot of customers now kind of take that for granted and they're expecting um, you know, text alerts directly, even if they change their phone number, we don't have it. Um, so the, the expectations for customers and technology has changed now, if looking more inward from the way that we manage our work, we really were reliant on some of the older ways of doing business. We had a lot of paper records, work orders were uh, written by hand and then scanned and given to various uh, field departments. We now have a digital work order management system. We have been able to tap our GIS resources in, in some really unique ways. One of the areas that I'm really proud of, I mentioned how we're trying to focus on equitably replacing our lead service lines. So we will overlay census data or blood lead level data we have from our county health department to help prioritize which neighborhoods we want to focus on. Um, we put all of our lead service line inventory on a publicly accessible GIS map for anyone to go and see, you know, what that uh, their property or a loved one's property may have in terms of their record for lead service line um, inventory. So whether we know if they have a lead line or not, and uh, you know, those are just some examples. We we just implemented SAP as our uh, enterprise resource platform. Uh, I believe that's the right uh, acronym for ERP, but uh, clearly not my expertise, but we are using it to improve our customer information system and our financial resource planning. And one of the offerings that now we have for customers is a portal where they can monitor their water usage. And it's one way that we can empower customers who may want to drive down their bill based on using less water that they have access to their meter reads and they can monitor on a daily basis, they can set up alerts, they have all the data that they may ever want 
um, right there at this online portal. And those are things that, you know, five years ago, I would have laughed if uh, someone suggested that we would be offering those for our customers. Quite frankly, there was a time where we struggled to get bills out every month. So we've really, through the adoption of technology and improved leadership in our um, customer service department and in others, we've we've really embraced technology, but I do feel like we're scraping the surface. There's just so much out there. And David, I'm sure you get the emails too about all this interesting technology that's out there in the water industry. And it's something we're constantly monitoring because we want to make sure that we are making wise investments um, with respect to tech and, and how we do our business. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've, you've talked a lot about, um, uh, you know, and that's been the so core focus so far of our conversation is, is kind of a customer facing uh, thing with, with the water reliability plan, the lead service lines, how you're rebuilding trust with your customers. But you also mentioned how organizationally there was a kind of a, uh, a number of temporary executives and things like that. And that has a tendency to erode kind of a corporate or, or utility culture. What have you done to, to build that, you know, that, uh, that culture of, you know, improving the culture of the actual utility in, you know, to the employees and people who work at Pittsburgh water and sewer authority. Yeah. I love that question, David. It's one, you know, it's sort of coming at it from an interesting perspective of being someone who worked up, you know, worked through the ranks in, in a sense internally. I, I knew what we were about. I mean, I had worked in the water industry previously. I fully appreciated the value of what we do and what it means um, and, and you speak to people uh, across the organization, and if, if you spoke to them a, a while back, they generally would have the same impression, but we weren't using the same terms. Um, you know, the, the sort of revolving door did not lead to a strong strategic approach to what we were doing, um, you know, hopping from crisis to crisis, and then leadership changes really doesn't allow for that. So. One of the first projects that our, our leadership team embarked upon was creating a mission, a vision, and values. And, you know, I felt strongly that this needed to be something with input from the entire workforce. This couldn't be a top-down initiative. You know, we wanted to hear from our employees, of, you know, from customer service to our field operators to our highly skilled engineering and construction teams, you know, what is it that makes PWSA unique and valuable to the community? And we were able to workshop that internally and we rested on um, a, a really great mission and vision and some core values that I am looking at right now in my office that help guide our decision-making on an ongoing basis. And, you know, it's, it's a small step. I, I think, you know, every organization has these uh, in on their website or somewhere, we had had ver versions of it. But for us to start speaking in, in, you know, on that same script that here's here's why we're important and and this is where we're headed. And you know, one thing that I'm really proud of is our focus on being environmental stewards, being stewards of a public asset. That's something that's uh, invoked in our mission statement and our. Vision is really focused on, I think I mentioned earlier, creating a water system that future generations can rely on. So we're we're not just solving the, the issue of the day. 
we want to keep in mind, you know, those families and businesses and public health professionals that are going to need this water well after we're out of these jobs. Uh, and it's something that really excites me. And we, we're just going to keep that steady drumbeat that we go back and and take a look at these uh, mission, vision and values and make sure that everything we're doing remains in alignment with that. I, you know, I, I, saw, I saw from afar a number of years ago that that uh, PWSA was in a little bit of trouble. I think the state legislature may have kind of been looking to put PWSA under the uh, PUC jurisdiction. Um, yeah, and it, it actually so it did happen okay. uh, in, in 2018. The, the state legislature passed a law making us the only municipal authority governed by the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission. And it's it's really fascinating. I'm sure we, we could spend hours, especially with some <laughs> with your background, David, talking about this. But, you know, it, it there was a lot of fear that we would not be able to meet the same standards that investor owned utilities who traditionally uh, are overseen by the PUC. You know, there was fear that we couldn't meet those same standards, especially with the organization uh, that existed back in 2018. And really what that oversight did is it, it forced us to up our game in a lot of respects, especially uh, the policies and procedures for customer service, uh, how we bill our customers, the volume of maintenance that we perform now out in the field. And, you know, maybe most importantly, it took the rate making process to the PUC and away from our board of directors. So it, it did have an impact of uh, depoliticizing at a local level, at least, the rate making process. So now we go through rate cases. There are nine month long procedural processes um, where we file our rate case and we then work it from there. Uh, we've been able to settle our rate cases in, in all of the instances that we've had with PUC and they see the value in what we're doing. And by and large, they've endorsed our approach. We've been able to meet that new standard and we've been able to, to take away some of the, the tension that is you know, absolutely understandable when you have a, a local board of directors that is asked to increase rates. Now that that's at the state level, there's a little bit of a, a air gap, we'll say, um, that's allowed us to get some sizable rate increases but that is what has put us on the footing where we've replaced 10,000 lead lines and that we have uh, progress against our water reliability plan. So we're unique in a lot of ways. I think other municipal authorities don't like that we have succeeded because we're now kind of seen as a potential model. Um, <laughs> but it's something that I'm proud that our team has met that, that challenge. And, uh, you know, it, it it has changed the way that we operate. But I think by and large, it's just really required us to to professionalize the organization. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of fear internally as to whether or not you can meet the same standards as investor owned utilities. Given that Pennsylvania is kind of the, oh, the almost the birthplace of fair value legislation. Um, you know, so there's a strong IOU bent in Pennsylvania. What, you know, can you talk a little about how, how that atmosphere impacted uh, Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority? Absolutely. You, and you're right. Uh, you know, coming from Washington, D.C., where I don't believe in my 
tenure at DC Water, anyone mentioned privatization. It was one of the first things that I heard thrown out when I arrived at PWSA, kind of the specter of privatization, especially in the context of the lead and copper rule exceedance, you know, which really came right on the heels of Flint's lead issues. So there was a lot of national attention. Privatization was seen as uh, a potential alternative at that time, in part because you we're in a unique situation where Pennsylvania American Water actually serves some residents of the city of Pittsburgh. So there, you know, the city of Pittsburgh kind of has a shared service territory between us and them. They they serve primarily the suburban ring of uh, the the Pittsburgh metro area. So some of our customers already had a private water utility, and um, they were able to make that immediate comparison between the two. The political uh, players locally, um, I, you know, while I was not part of those meetings, but I'm sure we're hearing from potential IOU suitors. And um, really, I, I think what it boiled down to was there was a, a lot of local advocacy that was adamant that we could pull this off with public leadership. And, uh, you know, the, the thought of losing access to a democratically appointed board of directors was something that um, was a, a point that was raised in a lot of the debates about the future of PWSA. Losing control to, or losing that influence when it comes to rates and things like affordability programs. And um, you know, me as a policy nerd, one of the things that stuck out to me was the ability for PWSA to be eligible for a lot of those PenVest loans that I was talking about earlier, PenVest loans and grants, um, you know, some of them can be tapped by investor-owned utilities, but by and large, those are reserved for publicly owned uh, water treatment and, uh, you know, wastewater organizations. So, you know, being able to finance the capital work that we're doing at a lower cost was a, a value proposition that was discussed at that time. And, you know, as it stands right now, I, I you know, it's, it's not a competition, but I would put ourselves, especially with respect to our lead service line replacement, up against our uh, local private water utilities. And, you know, some of them and they're the consultants that work for them are reaching out to us for input on how to shape their programs. So it's the public ownership has, I think, allowed us to be a little more progressive in uh, the way that we work on lead service lines and some of the discount programs that we're able to provide our lower income customers. So it it's certainly a, an interesting environment. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it it is probably always going to be part of the discussion in Pennsylvania, like you said, just because of um, some of the legislation and in the presence of investor owned utilities here. Well, Will, you've been absolutely fantastic today. I have I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you carving time out of your day. I know you're a busy executive, so thank you so much for coming on. Uh, do you have any parting words, any words of wisdom that you'd like to uh, uh, speak before we sign off? Oh, boy. You know, I, I imagine most of your listeners, I'm preaching to the choir here a bit, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would just suggest Take a little time, uh, you know, to even if you know, maybe share with your neighbors about where your drinking water comes from, uh, you know, where that water goes after it is used. 
I have a toddler at home and every time we're in the bathtub, I don't uh, lose the opportunity to, to talk about the miracle of what we in the, the water utility industry get to work on every day. Uh, I think when you have sort of that appreciation for uh, you know what we do, sometimes the inconvenience of a water main break or, or whatever, you know, you see the cones in the road, you, you can kind of appreciate the miracle that, that we can rely on, especially here in the United States, on our drinking water systems that have served us so well. Um, and we'll need some more investment. We, we know that that's, that's clear and we're getting some now. Um, but just take a little time to think about the miracle of the, the systems that we rely on often without thinking, I think is uh, the best I can do off the top of my head. Dave. <laughs> uh, you bet. All right. Well, Will, for those who want to find out more about you, more about uh, Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority, where can they go to get that information? Sure. So uh, PWSA's website is pgh2o, that's the letter o.com. And uh, certainly feel free to, to look me up on LinkedIn, Will Pickering. And uh, yeah, those two are the, I'm, I'm tweeting a little less than I did before I got the CEO job, uh, <laughs> but I am on Twitter, uh, often retweeting our official account, which is at pgh2o.com. Uh, or you can yeah feel free to to follow me on Twitter. I'd appreciate the follow. Great. Well, thank again, Will. Thanks so much. You've been terrific, and uh, really appreciate the lessons you've imparted. So thank you so much. No pleasure to be with you. Thank All you. Right. Uh-huh. Bye. What a terrific leader Will is. Loved his even keel nature and long term vision. Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority. You found the right person for the job back in 2020. Kudos to you, Will, and thank you again for the great conversation. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for the information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast. Click the first link that comes up. That'll be our landing page at the Bluefield Research website. Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values Podcast are not affiliates. We have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, the Water Values Podcast gets a home on the web at Bluefield Research's site. If you still use Twitter, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page as well. Well, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values podcast include Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black and Veatch, Trenex, and Mentor APM. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me.
Well, thank you for tuning in to The Disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.